Living a well-balanced lifestyle goes beyond ensuring your finances are in order. Welcome to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer from Hightower. Barbara speaks with wellness industry leaders and related professionals to share more than financial planning advice. She addresses your questions about living a healthy lifestyle at any age. Learn how to gracefully maneuver life's challenges with support and resources to guide you along the way. Barbara and the team at Hightower help you make a plan, make an investment, and make a difference in your own wealth and well-being, and in your families, and within your community. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Keeping the Well and Wealthy with your host, Barbara Archer from Hightower. Barbara, how are you? I am terrific, Eric. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. I'm excited. You've got another guest on the show. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, I think this is someone that's going to be helpful for all of us. So, Eric, I have a question for you, maybe a few. Do you ever feel like you are on overload? I think I heard that when we first got on and chatted a little bit. Yes, preach. (laughs) Yes, today it's been, oh, yeah. Too much to do, too little time. Yep. Is the stress sapping your happiness? My energy for sure, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, there you go. Well, those of us juggling work, family, and charitable commitments, and getting to the grocery store and doing the laundry and scheduling health appointments will appreciate today's guest, Dr. Ashley Willens. She literally wrote the book, Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life, published by Harvard Business Publishing in 2020, and we know how chaotic that year was. I'm excited to introduce you to Dr. Ashley Willens. She holds a PhD in social psychology from the University of British Columbia. She is currently a tenure-track faculty member in the Negotiation, Organizations, and Markets Unit at the Harvard Business School. Her award-winning research has been published in top academic journals and popular media outlets, including Harvard Business Review, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, I have to admit that I saw you on a TED Talk, and not that I was stalking you, but I just had to find you and have you share your wisdom with us on money, time, and happiness. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, you and I have had a short conversation together um, recently, and you mentioned the three rules that we promised our audience here today on managing Uh, work-life balance, but I think you and I decided that work-life balance might have a better term. I think we decided that, what did we decide? I think control over time. Work-life management. Oh, right. Work-life management. Yes, that's perfect. That's that's what we're going to (laughs) use. Yeah, we don't like the term work-life balance. Let's throw that out. Oh, thank you. It's gone. So the three roles you mentioned on your TED Talk included reframing rest, managing digital distraction, and negotiating for time. But before we get to that, I hear you just received the Early Career Award this year. Can you tell us what contributed to this honor? Yeah, so I'm a social psychologist, and like you mentioned, just received an Early Career Award recognizing achievements for a junior faculty member in my field. And as a social psychologist, I study the psychological experience of time affluence, feeling like we have enough time to do everything that we want to do and have to do in a day, and the psychological experience of time poverty, which is basically the opposite, and most of us. So we don't feel like we have enough time to do everything that we want to do or have to do, and how time affluence contributes to happiness. So that's really what I'm excited to talk more about today. Oh, I love that. I have an old friend that used to say to me, Barbara, when I'd say, I just don't have enough time. She said, what happens if in your head you said, I have just enough time to get this done? And I thought, oh, well, that might help. So <laughs> I think we're right, going right down that path that you've started on. So you stated that you spend most of your life thinking about the intersection of time, money, happiness, and public policy. So how did you come to focus on that link between the money, time, and happiness? And basically, what was your personal aha moment? Yeah, so I started this the pursuit of this topic completely in a nerdy academic way, focused on research, basic data, publishing academic papers. 
And then I started to think more about how the science of happiness and time use might apply in my personal life, other people's personal lives, and at work when I, shortly after I moved to HBS. So in 2017, I had just graduated from, with my PhD from the University of British Columbia in Canada, where I grew up. And I was with a partner for 10 years that I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with. I decided between, I had two options. I could stay in my hometown, work at a government job, or I could move across the country, well, to a different country, move across the continent and start a new life in a new city where I knew no one. That sounded way more appealing to me personally and a really exciting career opportunity that's once in a lifetime. So I decided I was going to go for it. My partner, on the other hand, was not so enthusiastic. They moved for a period of three weeks and then the most serious relationship of my life dissolved in a matter of months. And I was in a new city with no friends, no family and this huge job. And it was the first time I think in my life that things didn't go exactly according to plan, if you will, right? And it made me stop and rethink a lot of my own behavior. Obviously a relationship is a two-way street, but in my relationship, my partner said that they saw no path forward for them for a life here. And I realized in that moment that I hadn't created a space for us, just us. I hadn't carved personal time out enough to really make a meaningful experience for this other person. I was flying around the world, giving talks about the importance of quality time for relationships. And here I was throwing myself into work all the time, every day, all day, day in and day out. And so this experience made me realize the importance of time and made me really committed deeply to trying to understand how a chronic overachiever like myself and many people listening (laughs) could take the research from the academic literature and start trying to apply it in their own life to become more time affluent. I knew there was no quick fix solution to putting time first and that it would be really hard and it is hard, but I hope and think that this experience will help myself and all of us Think about time affluence like a habit, like going to the gym, right? We don't become physically fit overnight. And we also don't become time affluent and feel in control of our time overnight. But the academic literature and what I hope that we'll talk about today provides a lot of strategies we can take on a daily basis, try and retry to start feeling a little more time affluent and a little bit less time poor. Well, I do want to jump in here for anyone listening that's feeling sad for you for having lost that 10-year commitment with a partner. I am going to jump in here and say you're happily married and have a child. So there we go. So you've apparently been using and practicing what you preach. Trying my best. (laughs) Well, good. Work in progress. (laughs) When I was younger, I felt very pressured from many areas of my life. And I personally tried to calculate that cost of my time and where did I want to spend it with friends or family or buying stuff or taking vacation. So I figured out pretty early on that if I worked a little less, I got a raise. But at the same time, we're gonna discuss workism here shortly. And I think many of us, as you mentioned, type A, achievement oriented, we find a sense of purpose in that. So I would like to start with what we, you and I are gonna call better work-life management. After reading your book, I found that I loved when you mentioned finding time, funding time, and reframing time. So can you take us through these activities? Yeah, so I want to first, if it's okay, start with a little bit of what makes us feel so psychologically time poor. So one thing that's so interesting to me, and we can delve into this more, is that The time diary research, so when they survey people, ask them how they spent time in the last 24 hours and do all this big, huge panel data, all these macroeconomic, you know, microeconomic trends data, uh, country level and also like within country, we actually have more time than we used to. So we have more leisure. That's true for both men and women. 
now than we did in say the 1950s or 60s by at least a couple of hours. And certainly coming out of the pandemic, many of us have more control over our schedules than we used to. However, we feel more psychologically time poor than ever. And part of this has to do with the way that we manage our time and in particular, our digital distraction. So one concept in the time management literature that I absolutely love and think about all the time is from Bridget Schultz. She wrote a great book on time that inspired my dissertation topic. And she talks about time confetti. So our constant connection to technology fragments our leisure into these small, unenjoyable pockets, fragments of time confetti that makes it hard to enjoy our leisure makes us hard to stay focused in the present moment and re also reminds us of the opportunity cost of our time. So it reminds us of all the other things we could or even worse should be mm -hmm. doing. And so I think when we talk about like a foundational thing that we need to get right to feel more in control of our time is rethink our relationship with our technology. And a lot of these other strategies sort of come from leaning into the things that bring us joy, that allow us to be present in the moment and to minimize the things that are stressful and unproductive. And a lot of what is stressful and unproductive is our unhealthy connection to our technology. I love that. I mean, but I'm not gonna look at confetti the same way in the future. Just <laughs> yeah, it's, you know it's not as fun <laughs> no. when I talk about it in the way I just talk about it. It's something I know, that's it's gonna be spreading like, all of your enjoyable dinners with your family, but it's true. So it's so, since I, I have this like image in my mind of like, you used to have an hour when you weren't connected with your phone and that was quality time. Maybe you had a conversation with a friend, a partner, you enjoyed the time on your treadmill. And now that's, you're running on the treadmill while trying to type one-handed. Been there, done that, almost <laughs> fell off treadmills. Like, And I think the first step- Okay, in, here's a tip, use uh, dictation instead. Sure, but then you're still <laughs> running still and then you have it. to fix your dictation because you're on the treadmill trying to work out while also sending a voice memo. So I think a lot of like the foundation of becoming more time affluent is trying to get present in the moment and to really enjoy whatever it is you're doing when you're doing it but more related to these strategies. So now that we've kind of got the foundation, we need to try to be present in the moment of what we're doing and minimize our dis digital distraction. I'll talk about sort of each of these strategies in turns. So you mentioned right. finding time, funding time, and reframing time. Thank you. So the first strategy is finding time. If we were talking about our financial portfolios today, if we were talking about financial well-being today, the first step of that is knowing where your money is going. Well, when it comes to time management, the first step of becoming more time affluent is knowing where your time is going on a regular basis. So I encourage everyone, and research substantiates this, to keep a time diary of an average day. We're recording this on a Tuesday. That just so happens to be the most emotionally average day of the week. But you could pick any typical <laughs> work day and ask yourself, what did you do in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening? So step one is documenting how you mostly spent your time that day. Step two is asking yourself how you felt during each of these moments. Was an activity meaningful? So maybe you were working on a really difficult project at work and it might not have felt pleasant in the moment, but you were working towards something really important. So was it meaningful? Was it enjoyable? So this might be working out, socializing, catching up with a friend. Was it unproductive? Maybe this is something that is a task that you feel like you really shouldn't be doing, or it didn't move a mission critical outcome. It's, it felt wasteful, or was it stressful? So sometimes stress, as I already mentioned, is good, right? We might have right. to stress ourselves out while we're working out, say, hit a new fitness goal. But sometimes stress is both unproductive and like an, an activity is unproductive and unenjoyable. That's doom scrolling on social media. And so we want to be thinking about the activities that we completed over the last day at work and outside of it. What were the activities that brought us joy? You can think of this as a Marie Kondo method of time use, right? You want right. to pick up the things that bring you joy and satisfaction and meaning and happiness and ask yourself, how do I get more of those? What are those? Sure. And how do I get more of them? And then think about all the activities that were stressful, that were unpleasant, and ask yourself, how do I minimize those experiences on a daily basis and across my week and across my life? Because 
at the end of the day, how we spend our days on average is how we live our lives. So we want to know and make sure that how we're spending time on an everyday basis is when rolled up at the aggregate weeks, months, years, the way we want to say we are spending our lives. Wonderful. So we're going to organize those time junk drawers and put Love them in that. order. Yes. So you those, wanna... those old rubber bands and bent paper clips are getting pitched. Yeah. Like get, get rid of all the stuff you don't like, doesn't bring you joy, doesn't, isn't productive, isn't personally meaningful. And we can talk about how, but at a very high level, you can say no to it. You can outsource it. You can delegate it. You can try to minimize it. And the reframing strategy will come back to what if you can't get rid of it? So it, okay, yeah, I will so, move there. So I like the funding time. I mean, so we can trade cash for time, right? If we outsource it. Yeah. Someone so, else do some of those things for us or delegate it. Yep. So the second strategy is funding time. So once you figure out what you don't like, what you're doing too much of that you wish you would rather not be doing, which is really a self-reflection exercise, you can start outsourcing or spending a little bit of discretionary money to outsource your most disliked tasks to others. This works both in our personal lives and at work. So, so many times when I'm having these conversations with business owners, they're like, oh, funding time. I should have hired an assistant so much sooner than I did. Why was I doing my own taxes all those years? Why didn't I get legal assistance faster? Why didn't I get someone to be a virtual assistant or assistant to me or an EA faster? So this also resonates in the professional domain, thinking about doing, getting, and it's big in startups, obviously, but get rid of things that aren't, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be spending right. your time elsewhere. And, and not productive. Exactly. Basically, when you hate doing something, you're not doing it to your best ability. Yeah. And in our personal lives, even as little as $40 can go a long way in boosting our happiness and reducing our time stress. So this was some studies I ran in grad school. I just gave people 40 bucks and asked them to spend it to save time or to spend it on a material purchase. They were happier, less stressed when they made time-saving purchases. Uh, they had better relationship satisfaction because they actually were more proactively discussing. So we have a new paper we're working on. Couples who make time-saving purchases together are happier. They spend more quality time together because they spend less time ruminating about the chores when they're together because they know they're being taken care of by someone else. How lovely. Yes. I like that. So there, you're also a marriage counselor. Good, good job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think a lot about this uh, now that I'm happily married. I want to stay happily married. Good plan. But, yes. Yeah. But I think one other thing I will say with regard to funding time is think about what part of the activity you don't like, right? Mm -hmm. So even if you have a yard, maybe you don't like cutting your lawn, but you like doing the gardening. There's a difference in this matters because there's actually, if you outsource everything, that's bad for happiness because then you feel like your life's out of control and you don't get to enjoy these small household moments or whatever. We have this in our data. So you want to be thinking about being strategic. Maybe you like cooking, but hate grocery shopping. So really ask yourself, what part of the household task do I not like doing? And then think about throwing money against that one specific part. Oh, that's great. Getting really deep into what do I hate doing? I like that. Being specific. Thank you. Exactly. And then finally, the last strategy here is reframing. So every time I give these talks, talk about these ideas, people are like, but I don't want to pay for a house cleaner because I want my kid to know the value of hard work or I can't afford it or I don't want to do that. It's against my belief system. That's totally fine. Or I'm at work, I'm giving a talk to an organization and they say, well, I can't outsource the things I don't like. Like I'm a junior person. I do all the things no one likes or whatever it is. That's tough. Yes. I know, but we've all been in that situation before. There are sure. tasks at work and at home that you don't like and guess what you have to do it anyways. So what about those moments? What about those activities? So we have data that speaks to the fact that in our personal lives, you can reframe some of your most unpleasant activities Either, so this works better in a professional domain. So I'll go with that example first. So at work, an unpleasant task for me is like cleaning and coding data. I need to do that to get 
to generate insights that I put in a book and I like communicate. I like doing that part, but I often have to like clean code to check it a hundred times before I submit it for publication. Not that enjoyable, but my PhD student has research showing that just thinking about your, how your most unpleasant tasks at work helps your colleagues get their work done, contributes to the mission of the organization. And as an employer, helping your employees see the value that even tedious digital communication tasks, emails can be in moving the project along and recognizing that link between the task that's unpleasant and the important outcome can go a long way in helping people stay motivated through their unpleasant, uncomfortable tasks. In our personal lives, to get to the point where we're present in the moment, not thinking about all the other things we could or should be doing during our leisure time, we should, my colleague has research on this, think about our weekends like a vacation. Uh, it's not that we spend our time differently, but we're more present in the moment and we savor the time that we have to a greater extent when we're in this vacation mindset. We feel like we can just truly enjoy our free time. And then when it comes to having to do stuff around the house, I got this pro tip from my husband is we can also, if we have to do chores or do something unpleasant around the house, we can either reward ourselves, which maybe we'll talk about in a little bit, but we can also do something else that's enjoyable at the same time. Uh, so this is known as temptation bundling in the academic literature. And it was tested by having people only be able to listen to their sort of gossipy or audiobook when they were at the gym. So they paired something they don't like doing, a lot of steps on the treadmill, with something they really like, which is that really bad romance novel that they know they <laughs> kind of they shouldn't be reading. And so we can also do that in our personal lives. Maybe we only are allowed to listen to like our celebrity gossip podcast while driving and that will make the experience of commuting more enjoyable. Yeah, it would make it different. I had an uncle that was a Marianist brother and he told me once how he had to peel, I mean, think about a whole monastery full of religious people how many potatoes he had to peel. And I said, oh, that sounds awful. And he said, well, it was meditative. And I'm like, peeling a potato? He said, if you look at each potato, each one is so different. You can feel the textures different before and after you peel it. And you know the end result, just as you said, was to feed your community. And I thought, wow, you know, that's a whole different reframing technique. Mm. Yeah, and this has connections with the mindfulness literature. So there is discussion and research about, you know, if you can really learn how to love the simple moments, right, that you will truly find fulfillment, meaning, and happiness. Wow. Well, we're talking about that. And you mentioned about a weekend as a vacation. So share with us the difference about practicing the right kind of leisure, active versus passive, its effects on happiness. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So again, going back to the financial wealth analog to time affluence, right? So financial affluence and, and it speaking to time affluence, I think we want to be thinking about building like a diverse leisure portfolio. And so a varied life and filling, so filling our time with different activities across days is good for meaning and satisfaction. We don't want to fill our activities too much within a day. So anytime we try to do too many things, even if they're meant to be enjoyable, this is like my A-type friends in college who would try to maximize the happiness benefit of a Saturday by getting up at six and running around town, going for a run, cooking, volunteering at three different organizations in one day. That is contributing to time poverty and is unenjoyable. So when we're thinking about how to kind of begin to structure a happy, happy and meaningful life, we wanna be thinking about having varied activities across days and not too many different things within a day. So and then, a diversified portfolio of leisure activities over time. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and then the second step is, well, what should those time assets be? Like, what should those activities be? I'm really, I'm running with this, I'm sorry. But I, I have it. also it's been great. really interested in financial management. So I, I think I see a lot of similarities between how people talk about money management and my research on time. So what should you fill that, that leisure time with? Research suggests, and some of the research that I've conducted 
is that you want to be thinking about spending more time engaged in active leisure activities. What does that mean? These are activities that evolve, involve a little bit of deliberation and planning and that are more proactive. So these are things like volunteering, socializing, exercising, a survey response item that we ask about, quote, intimate relations. Um, and these are things that involve connecting with others and moving our bodies. So and, setting up a pickleball game would be a fun activity. Yes. And also relig religious activities, going to church, volunteering, mm -hmm. and even spending within a day 10 to 30 minutes on these kinds of active leisure activities can produce noticeable benefits for life satisfaction and positive mood. Even 10 wanted... minutes, 10 minutes, you said? Yes. In my wow. data, the difference in happiness is about half a ladder point. So we ask on a 10 point ladder, how happy you are. You move from a six to a six and a half. If you spend 10 more minutes engaged in one of these active leisure activities. Whoa, good investment. It's a great investment of time for happiness. And it's something I think what it does have that woe sense because a lot of us think that we have to do a lot more leisure mm -hmm. activity to get the happiness bang for our buck, if you will, which we sometimes talk about. But it's not like the data doesn't substantiate this. And it's true with exercise. So exercise scientists have shown that even a 10, 10 minutes or 30 minutes is, you know, very, is better than zero, right? Of course. Uh, and so I think we need to get out of, especially the overachieving types like us, of this trap of thinking, well, if I can't work out in the gym for two hours or an hour, or I can't do my five miles, there's no point doing anything at all. Or if I can't talk to my friend for an hour, I sh what's the point of even texting them to see if they can chat for five minutes? And um, so another way to get more of these activities in your everyday life is to plan them as part of your day when you find yourself with breaks. Well, how do we segregate those, look at the difference of active that you just discussed with passive activities. Is yes. that being a couch potato and watching TV? It, it is exactly what it sounds. Okay. So we, we can, it is spending time in our, this is how we ask it in our data, relaxing, resting, doing nothing, watching TV. So we shouldn't not do those things. I'm not advocating and I don't want it to be construed that I'm saying, we shouldn't do those things. We absolutely need them. We need to rest, recuperate, do nothing, go for, you know, kind of stare at a wall after a long meeting. At least I do that. There are times and places, but in general, those activities of scrolling on social media, of being on our computers, of watching stressful television are the activities when you do that finding time exercise associated with low levels of productivity and high levels of stress. So those would be the exact kind of activities we'd probably say we wanna do less of and we wanna minimize. So it's about making sure that we're spending time on an everyday basis, investing in social relationships, our physical health, our community, because those things, those active leisure activities are, it's quite well substantiated in the literature, well supported, that those are the activities that really make a meaningful difference for our positive mood, our meaning, but most importantly, they contribute to the happiness and meaning in life of those around us. So would you identify a mindfulness activity as more of an active leisure versus a passive leisure? Because you're sitting there. So whether it's meditation or, or something that's just for you, and we're going to talk a moment here about idleness aversion, but is that considered active versus passive? That's a great question. So I should have mentioned that's in our active leisure category. Praying oh, and meditating is seen as is in our active leisure kind of set constellation or of, of activities. Okay, great. I feel better now about that. So <laughs> as we talk about that, you mentioned six time traps. And two of my favorites are the idleness aversion and the yes, damn effect. Can you expound on the, some of the traps and give us some examples? Yeah. So kind of linking back to an earlier partner conversation, we 80% of us feel time poor, like we don't have enough time to do everything we want to do or have to do. That's 80% of working adults living in the US. And it also translates all over the world in my data. 
And so one question I ask, Wait, in my one, I, I will ask you, is this to make us all feel normal? Thank you, by the way. Yes, okay, yes, good. Yes. And I'm I should have checking. started off this conversation by saying, if you identify with being time poor, that's because most of us do, <laughs> including yep. myself. And so one question I ask is, well, like, why do we get ourselves into that feeling? Like, not only do how do you get out of it, which is what a lot of our conversation has been, but why do we get there in the first place? And so this is a, like what I call time traps. What are the psychological pathways that we go down that result in us feeling like we don't have enough time, actually not having enough time. So what, what happens? What traps do we get into? And so one of them that we'll talk about the two that you mentioned, one of them is idleness aversion. So part of the reason why time is so difficult in modern society to prioritize is because we're taught that leisure is laziness. This is a Protestant work ethic. We believe that being productive is the path to being a moral and good person. And if we have leisure in the US, this is not generalized to all countries, we must okay. be a bad person doing something wrong that's gonna be unsuccessful in life. Even though the data suggests the best leaders take all their vacation, have, you know, flexibility at work is good for creativity. Yeah, like there's a lot of empirical research suggesting the opposite is true, yet we believe that if we have a spare moment, something bad is going to happen and we're a bad person. Mm. Um, in Italy, it's my colleague has research on this, it's the opposite. So they show that people who have a lot of leisure and take nice vacations are seen as a high status person that's doing something right in life, um, which I love those findings. I wish our society could move more to celebrating leisure. And I hope conversations like this will help all of us. I hope so. So, better. but it is a cultural change because you mentioned, yes. the, you know, the difference in our society versus Italy. And so, I'm with you. Um, good wine, pasta. I think it sounds like a good plan. We need more research. I'll go with you. We'll do some yeah, research. Yeah, I think we should do some field research on that. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's relevant to this topic. So I think we could it totally is. get some research, research money on this question. We'll circle back on this in a couple of years and <laughs> tell you the results of, uh, of trying of to- Of our research. Yes, of trying <laughs> to make the US more Italian. So the idleness aversion comes from this Protestant work ethic, from being very work-oriented, and this is research based on from Tim Wilson and Dan Gilbert, two prominent social psychologists and their colleagues. And this is a perfect example of idleness aversion. So they recruited some Harvard undergrads, naturally, and they invited them to the lab and they gave these undergraduates a choice. You could either be left alone in this room without your phone and only your thoughts, or you could blast yourself with mild electric shocks. Oh. Those were their choices? Yes. Okay. The, the college students, most of them picked blasting themselves with mild electric shocks <sighs> over being left in a, alone in a room with only their thoughts because it gave them something to do. And I think we can all relate to this idea of filling our calendars constantly. If there's nothing in our calendar, I feel like I need to fill it. Otherwise, maybe I'm a bad person. Maybe my career is not productive. Maybe I'm not going to be considered for my next promotion at the same rate as my colleague. Do, 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 do is always mm -hmm. where our brains gravitate toward. And it's not necessarily a bad inclination, right? We're goal-oriented, achievement-oriented people. Right. This has worked for us. It's served us in some ways, but it's often too much and too often. Well, my husband's comment to me is just because you see a gap of 20 minutes in your calendar does not mean you have to fill it. So we all suffer from this. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it relates exactly to the second time trap of the yes, damn effect. Yes. Because we do end up with no time because we're worried about having blank space in our calendar. And the yes, damn effect goes further and says, we also are overly optimistic about our time affluence in the future. This is a version of the planning fallacy. It keeps us going in life. We're like, I'll be more free in the future. I'll have lots more time tomorrow sure, than I do today. Sure. Like statistically, your future schedule is going to look at like the probability of it is that it's probably like 100% probable that it's going to look exactly like it does today, if not worse, because you're probably overscheduling your future time and you're probably taking things out of your schedule as you get closer to the week and you realize how busy it is. So if anything, your future is going to be 
more busy in the future, not less. And so there's lots of time management people talk about. If you wouldn't say yes to it today, don't say yes to it in three. I like to look at my meeting calendar this week and remind myself before saying yes to something that chances are, Ashley, your schedule is going to look exactly like this busy day that you said you'd wish never would have happened in three months. So do you want to add another thing or do you want to get more time to spend with your baby, your husband on this important writing assignment that you're doing on this new book you're writing? And I'm like, yes, I probably want to do the more time thing, even if it means overcoming my idleness aversion. Well, so we're talking about filling our calendars and being busy and work. I mean, work just seems to fill us up at times. So can you share the link between financial uncertainty and workism? Maybe starting with defining for our audience workism, which I read for the first time in your book. Yeah. So workism is a coin, a term that was coined by Derek Thompson, a writer at the Atlantic has a podcast comes up with great terms for all kinds of societal phenomena. Brilliant. Was reading a lot of his articles because he studies societally relevant topics while I was writing my book, uh, thinking a lot about work, money, capitalism, and our relationship with our employers and just the idea of work. So workism is this idea that work has become a deeply ingrained part of our identities, that more now than ever, we look to our workplaces to know who we are, where we fit, to have a contribution to society, to get all of our basic needs met of you know, relatedness, so reaching out and meeting new connections, competence, feeling like a good person that's good at stuff. And so workism is a really important driver of our time poverty because we often give and ex expect to be able to fulfill our entire identities through our work. And this is a challenge for organizations, right? So this is why you see a lot of organizations doing things like having employee resource groups and volunteer initiatives and incentives that are experiential because people are really now a look for meaning and purpose in their lives through their jobs. And sure. this can be a challenge for things outside of our jobs because we will give a lot of our time, attention, energy, and resources to things that also make money. And it can be difficult then for us to give time, attention, energy to things outside of this, the capitalist system. And one of my colleagues talks about this, Arthur Brooks, about how we've lost the ability to make non-deal friends. So he calls them deal friends and real friends. And I think this is really interesting and, and sort of related to this idea of workism is that even our friendships and our communities are now through our work or for a business related purpose, as opposed to someone down the street who you just happen to like and you like to go for walks with. So I think it contributes to time poverty because we then feel guilty about stepping away from work to do things that are non-work related. Well, we've got to find ways to eliminate that guilt, don't we? We absolutely <clears throat> do. You provided a list of strategies, and I'm going to start with one of your simple questions to ask ourselves. Why am I doing this? How is this important to begin taking control of our time? Yeah, so let's use the social media example, which is actually where we came up with this strategy in the book. We often find ourselves on our phones. And I still do this exercise when I have my phone out, when I am also sitting beside my partner, or I'm in between meetings. I if I catch myself scrolling and staring into the abyss of my phone, I check in with myself and I ask myself, why am I engaging in this behavior? And often, like in one very concrete example, which I talk about in the book, my book editor and I both did this to see what would happen. Like we were both kind of just like trying this exercise out. And often I would find myself scrolling on my phone at work between meetings because I was anxious about the upcoming meeting. Oh, okay. And so, and there's research that supports this idea that we will use our phones as a distraction device, especially when we're feeling negative, anxious emotions. So now I know that about myself. So I stop 
and I try to do something else that's actually going to solve the anxiety as opposed to making me feel more anxious. Being on your phone usually is a source of anxiety. So you weren't looking at puppy videos or something to make yourself feel better or laughing? So... Yeah, I mean, you could use it in that way, but I definitely wasn't. I was definitely on Twitter, definitely doom scrolling. I was definitely not using my phone to be a source of a relief for my feelings. So now I will, you know, prepare my presentation or go for a walk, kind of stroll around the hallways if it's something that's anxiety provoking. And then at home, phone use is contagious. So often we will, if someone's at a dinner table with a phone out, other people will start looking at their phones if one person does it. And oh, so they shouldn't is... be at the dinner table, Ashley. No yes, phones at the dinner table. Exactly. So that it should be a rule because a lot of these activities that we engage in that are mindless are because people around us are doing them. Well, that doesn't surprise me. And you'd mentioned about calendaring. And you have brought up the calendar mindset, whether an individual is a clock time person or an event time person. So which are you and how do I identify ourselves and what do we do about it? Yeah, so I think there's a great set of research findings in the academic literature on how we tend to think about time. And I think a lot of what we've been talking about today is about surfacing self-awareness. So what do you care about? Are you living in line with the things you care about? Are you making enough time for things you say you care about? (laughs) How do you get rid of things you don't like doing? And then the calendar mindset is how should you, like, in which ways do you prefer to schedule your day? So it kind of gets to the structure of time, how we should structure our time for our unique ways of being in the world. So this research has identified two kinds of people. This is on average. It's not 100% perfect, like all academic research, right? We can think about on average, not in every situation. But in general, people tend to be more clock time or more event time. So a clock time person likes to do things by the hour. They like to set up their day, as the name would suggest, in this very organized, you can imagine people are like more conscientious, tend to be more clock time people, right? I liked you said conscientious and not rigid. Thank you for that. Yes, yes. Reframing, right? Positive reframing is the the goal today. Look at all the money I'm saving on therapy. I love this. Thank you. (laughs) I am a positive psychology researcher, right? So it's like, how can we we move things to the level of positive appraisal? And so clock time people, yes, more conscientious. They like to know exactly when things are going to happen in a day. This is true for both leisure and work. I think you're laughing because you identify with this. You should also look at my calendar. Highly identified with this. And... So you like to do everything by the clock, by let the clock kind of rule your life, right? Um, Which is fine. It's good. It gives you a sense of control over your calendar. However, we do need to recognize if we find ourselves resonating with this, we absolutely are by the clock. We like to schedule everything so our calendars are perfect, et cetera. We actually need to start building in more spontaneity. So you sort of are laughing that this type of clock persona tends to be more structured. Well, this person actually needs to leave a little bit of breaks and boundaries between their meetings to allow spontaneous conversations to come up, to allow those informal conversations, which make life so interesting. We almost need to allow those moments to happen more. And so this can also come up in the context of leisure. We were sort of saying, don't schedule all your leisure activities back to back. My colleague has research showing that if you do, it feels more like work even for people who have a clock time orientation. So we want to be roughly scheduling our leisure, not being so rigid about when that we need to get to all of our extracurricular activities, exactly when they're going to happen. We need to allow for some fluidity when we're having brunch with our girlfriends, for example. Sure. (laughs) You know, that second margarita. Yeah, you've got to need a little more time. You need some buffer. You got it. Yep. And then for event time. So event time is what what the name sounds and it's a little bit work does constrain our ability to express this preference but for event time people their day might sound a little bit more like first i'm gonna work out then i'm gonna work on my project proposal and then i'm gonna go to the office and have a couple of conversations and then i'm gonna drive home and pick up my kid and so it sounds more fluid because they're typically scheduling things not by the clock but by the activity so this 
is constrained again by team dynamics a bit. But is there lower stress with that? Does that person have lower stress? I don't know what the academic data suggests on that. I think it might depend a little bit on the environment. Like, is the environment conducive to that personality? Because you could end up working against the grain a bit or working against your preference a bit if you're in a really time-bound organization. So I think the evidence there is a little bit mixed on stress. But what I think we can all learn from this kind of personality is we usually need more time to do our like more creative strategic planning activities than we might otherwise give ourselves. And so you often hear financial gurus, I've heard about the conversation between Warren Buffett and Bill Gates about how Warren never had anything in his calendar. He would just have these open blocks of time. And I think when it comes to event time, I think we can all learn from putting the key priorities in your day and then structuring your day according to the things you want to get done. So Mm -hmm. an event time person will literally not really want to move on to the next task until they're done with the first one, until they feel ready to move on. Um, And I really think a lot about that because I think in some ways for, especially for creative or more strategic planning, we want to be a little bit more like that event time person. Sure. They're focused on what's important. Yes. At that moment, that event is important. Yeah. But for if we're in execution land, we might want to be more clock time. We have deadlines coming up. We have a lot of deliverables. So I think it's interesting to think about these personas as tools that we can try on and use strategies that we can use depending on the context. Well, thank you. Well, Ashley, we're coming towards the end of our time here. And I've learned so much from you today, the importance of finding funding and framing our time asking ourselves why we're doing an activity. And if we do prioritize time over money and the link between financial insecurity and workism and identifying and practicing the right kind of leisure, there were just so many, so many issues that we've addressed. So in closing though, Ashley, I want you to share with us how you keep your well in wealthy. Yeah, so I try to and start the day by investing in myself first. So the biggest habit that I've disrupted to contribute to my well-being is not checking email as the first thing I do in a day. I strategically spend an hour before logging into my work email, meditating, walking, spending time with my daughter, making breakfast, but not checking my phone or email. Ah, sounds like a healthy way to start the day. So thank you, Ashley, for sharing your time and your thoughts, which I hope you found fulfilling in meeting your why by helping us find ways to enjoy more time to provide more happiness that's under our control. Eric, I'm going to ask you as a professional, a busy father who does much for the community, what questions might you have for Ashley while we have her here with us? Oh, so many questions. (laughs) Really, I'll limit it to two things. One comment. First of all, when we, we do the research study in Italy, I carry bags wonderfully. I can, like a pack mule, I will carry your equipment, your books, whatever. Just, Just let me go with the two of you. It'd be fantastic. All right. But on a serious note, does the research show, out of curiosity, that women struggle with trying to fill that idle time more than men. And the reason I ask is because I think my wife has read the Harvard study because if I sit down and try to relax, she delivers mild electrical shocks to me <laughs> to, to make me move. And I'm like, you just need to relax for a little bit. So I'm curious, does it say that women struggle with this more than men? So I think related back to the conversation we were having about guilt, women on average tend to be more guilt prone than men. So to the extent that work is something that makes us feel good and leisure is something that makes us feel bad, like we're doing something wrong, women, to the extent that they're more guilt prone, are more likely to experience the guilt of leisure. And unfortunately, women need the free time the most because on average, they spend more time on chores and childcare and they negotiate for time less in the workplace or less often than men. 100%. 100%. On average. Yeah. I mean, my wife is hands down a harder worker than I am. And I love her for that. But 
there is that balance that we try to strike with it's time to take time for ourselves to relax and just for her to sit down and watch a show is almost impossible. There's always something being done while watching it. It's interesting. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it so much. Barbara, of course, we wouldn't be here without you again. Picked thank an amazing you, Eric. Guest. And thank, thank you, you, Ashley, so much for joining us. It was great fun. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And our last thank you goes to the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to Keeping the Well and Wealthy with Barbara Archer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Barbara comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Hightower, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to go out in the world and make a difference. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Hightower Wealth Advisors. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Hightower Wealth Advisors is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material is not intended or written to provide and should not be relied upon or used as a substitute for tax or legal advice. Information contained herein does not consider an individual's or entity's specific circumstances or applicable governing law, which may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and be subject to change. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.